Hi. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to mention two things real quick. First, this is a long show, and you don't gotta be a hero. There are natural breakpoints, so, you know, stop when you need to stop, drink some water, and pick it back up when you're ready. Second, Hail Mary Digital is an independently produced podcast, right? Like, I'm not on a fancy podcast network, and the show isn't ad-supported or anything like that. Now, I'm not looking for support, but if you do enjoy the program, I'd ask that you consider leaving a donation with the Sandy Ground Historical Society. Sandy Ground, which is located right here on the south shore of Staten Island, is the oldest continuously inhabited free black settlement in the United States and was a station along the Underground Railroad. The Historical Society offers workshops to students across New York City, and they even maintain a museum here in the community. Every dollar helps them continue their work of telling their story. If you're interested, there's information in the show notes and on my website. Anyway, here we go. Every single day, I get to play an unfun game. There's no name to this game, and it can pop up at just about any moment. The real kicker about this game is I can't even win. By virtue of simply playing the game means I've already lost. An unfun game I can't win is not a game I want to play, but my brain seems to have a mind of its own. Go figure. And so I must. I play, I lose, rinse and repeat, day in and day out. What is this game? Well, picture yourself. You've just walked into a door and stubbed your toe. Or you're scrolling too far deep into someone's Instagram history and you accidentally like a post. Or maybe you're running on a cruise ship, you slip and you stab your eye with a pen. Some thing has just happened, so come on down. The game has begun. Because I don't know about you, but whenever some stupid ass thing like that happens, I immediately review the chronology of events that led me to this moment. I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm off. And the game wouldn't be the game if I just identify whatever it was that just preceded the fuck up. <laughs> I mean, if only, right? For some reason, a virus in my millennial blood perhaps, it's easier to believe a global conspiracy decades in the making than just admit I screwed up. Why? I don't know. Anyway, here we are. Episode 2. Let's talk about a time I fucked up big time. I'm Pink. Hit it! You're listening to Hail Mary Digital. Am I going to have to bleep out every time I say the word fuck? Episode 2. I fucked up big time. Or, I'm finding perfect goodness. Alright. Okay. We gotta play the game. But that means we gotta start at the end. And our story ends about a decade ago. On December 18th, 
2010. That's the one, but what about the where? We're at the cup on Staten Island. I don't know if it was the cup at the time because the cup has had many names over the years. Like for a time, it was just that, the cup. But it's also been the muddy cup, the full cup, and most recently, the hashtag bar. Anyway, we're at the cup. The cup, for my money, had the best sound system of any venue on the island. For local shows, having the best sound system meant that the PA was, for once, louder than the band themselves. You're not just hit with the wall of mush. I mean, yes, you're still hit with the wall of mush, but at least you can hear the vocals and make out the kick drum too. Better sound, to me, meant it was going to be a better show than normal. And I get that that seems like an obvious point to make now that I'm writing it down, but there are two direct consequences to this. The first one. Consider the date of this show, December 18th. This show took place on a Saturday night, a week before Christmas. Local shows were usually themed if there was some appropriate special occasion coming, like a holiday. A few weeks before, we probably had our annual Thanksgiving show with all the ska bands. But for this show, that meant everything. Instruments, the musicians, the halls of the venue, they were all decked out with boughs of holly and other assorted holiday paraphernalia. I believe one drummer had a um, <laughs> baby Jesus taped to his kick drum. And, and then really, would it have been a Christmas show without a makeshift punk nativity? It's doubtful. The cup looked great, and the vibe could only be described as, you know, merry. Part of that also had to do with where most of us were at in our lives. 2010 was the year I graduated high school, and while I spent my first semester in college in Manhattan, it felt like being a world away from home, and there'll be more on that later. Beyond that, I was also a year or two younger than most of the crew in the scene, and many of them went to school much further away than I did, states away sometimes. Meaning, for a lot of us, this is one of the few precious breaks where we were all home. Some of the bands hadn't played local shows in months. And in an absence of shows, that meant not seeing your show friends in ages. What are show friends? I'm glad I assumed you asked. Show friends are friends that you only ever saw at shows because no one has the time to see anyone at any other time. But you make sure to make a whole thing of it. Like, going to shows wasn't just about going to the show, right? You all got food afterwards at Mike's place or something. My best friend Zim and I would get Palmer's at the Food Mart and sit on my porch talking local band politics after a good show. That kind of stuff. Anyway, I just love watching people reunite. That first glimpse of realization, the cheer, the hug, the sizing each other up and down during small talk, the, I'll be right back, I just saw somebody else I gotta say hello to. But whatever, there's gonna be a ton of people here and yeah, this place ended up being packed. Couple all that with the fact that we're playing a venue that had the only decent sound system on the island, and this show was looking like it had the potential to be an all-timer. The second direct consequence of having a good PA 
was that my recording was going to come out sounding super crisp. For a few years at that point, I'd been running a Tumblr blog called the Staten Island Local Show Closet. This was a little hobby I had. Whenever I went to a local show, I'd take my bulky Sony D50 digital recorder to quote-unquote tape the whole thing. Maybe a day or so later, I'd splice up all the tracks and upload them to a blog for people to download. Real quick, you want to talk about a fuck-up. Back in the day, there were two main file-sharing sites you could use before the likes of Dropbox and Google got in the game. Mediafire and Mega Upload. Remember that scene from the end of The Last Crusade where Donovan drinks from the chalice that Elsa picked out for him and then he crumbles and then the night is all like... He chose... poorly. Between Mediafire and fucking Mega Upload, guess which one I used to host all my recordings? Yeah. My point is, if the sound system was good, the bands were going to sound better, which meant my recordings would sound better, which meant I'd get more reblogs on my little Tumblr profile and, subsequently, more downloads. And because I'm just as screwy as everyone else's, all those fake internet points, meager as they may be, validated a small part of my self-worth, okay? I admit it. I mean, I'm kidding slightly, but by the end of 2010, bands liked the show clauses because they'd be able to approximate how they sounded live, and people liked hearing sets that they might have missed. I felt like I was keeping up the legacy started by Zeppelin bootleggers, just on a much, much smaller scale. I was happy to document those times and places. Nobody else was doing it, and it felt like somebody ought to. Why not me? Running the show closet felt like a responsibility, and the further we get away from that time, the happier I am to have done it. But also, like, I don't want to just go to shows and have to worry about the levels on my dear Sony D50 the whole time. I'd have to stand in the back of the venue by myself, and I didn't get to enjoy the bands or be in the thick of it all with my friends. And there's my problem. So, ready for the fuck up? Here it is. It's a Christmas show. At the Cup. We're a few bands in, and yeah, this show is living up to the potential. Everything's going rosy, it's awesome, I'm in the back, taping an old-school pop-punk band called Story. Story's got a pretty storied history. Soon after this show, they changed their name to Western and become just an emo band. And a little while after that, they'd change their name to The Messenger Flood and be a post-rock band. Before they were Story, they were a punk band called The Antics, and after that, just before they became Story, they were a punk ska band called Sink You Fool. You got all that? No? It's okay. The point is, and this is subtle, but Story had already written and were playing songs that would be part of their Freight in Limbo EP, which they'd released under the Wester moniker. Put another way, this pop punk band was playing emo songs. They're, what, the third or fourth band of the night? I've just been hanging out underneath the Cup's little mixing booth recording everyone. But the guys in Story are my friends, and their set is winding down. I want to be with them. I want to be in the crowd. So I call over my buddy, my best friend Brian, just before Story about to play their last song. And Brian knows the drill. He'll hold my recorder for a second. I'll push my way up through the crowd a little bit. Perfect. Story start playing a song called Shattered Island, which is interesting, but more on that later, too. But they play it, it's great, we're all jolly. 
this is when it happens. My fuck up was this. I should have known better. Known what was about to happen. Like I just said, story went through about a million band names and sounds, but right before they were story, they were Sink You Fool, the punk ska band. They released one and only one EP as Sink You Fool, but the third song on it was this cute little number called Caps, Gages, Shorts, and Kicks, which everyone just called Caps. Caps was a bit of a calling card for this band, you know, a novelty. A fun little song to top off any set because it was just so out of left field. This wasn't a pop punk song or a ska song or even an emo song. This was, what else, a hardcore song. And I knew this. This shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was. I mean, really, they always, always ended their sets with caps. And thanks to Brian, I have the audio. I might as well roll it. Mosh pits are like an inverse hurricane. The center, you know, ground zero where I was standing, of course, is where it's most fun. At least in my experience, which was this. This was the one and only time I ever got caught in a mosh pit. So yeah. Story bursts into caps, and after the first few rapid snare hits, I'm hit immediately. Wham! Was I whacked from behind or from the front? Doesn't matter. In any case, I wasn't expecting this. I was caught off guard, and so it didn't take much to send me to the floor. I landed on my elbow. In case you're wondering, just because somebody's body has hit the floor does not mean a mosh pit stops. So, I still heard all of the ruffling going on around me, and the pounding amplifiers. All the Christmas lights that had been set up around the cup didn't matter down here. It was dim. There was just legs and feet. People stepping in. But that wasn't the worst part. The worst part was that I got hit in the head. Somebody's knee or foot, and then it happened again, and again. I swear to God, I was having lucid enough thoughts while all this was happening to recall something from the news from a few weeks prior. My senior year of high school, I thought it'd be so very worldly and astute of me to start reading Al Jazeera English as one of my main news sources. Al Jazeera didn't hold back, not like the American news websites did. So their coverage of the Phenom Pen stampede was particularly graphic. People were stuck on a bridge the third day on the Kemer Water Festival and began pushing from both sides. A panic broke out, leading to the stampede, which claimed 347 lives. I didn't remember all that distinctly. What was distinct was what I was feeling. And this wasn't claustrophobia or pain, it was fear. I was getting anxious because knowing what I knew was happening to me. This is how people die. I tried moving, putting my hands out to try and get up, but that was pointless. They just kept getting kicked out from under me. I should be clear too, nobody was trying to hurt me. 
I mean, at least I don't think. It's just the point of scuffling like this is, well, the scuffle. Most times you get knocked around and you bounce back up. No big deal. Usually people around you are helping you out. And I'd seen that a hundred times. But it wasn't happening for me. I remember being down there and asking myself, why is it taking so long? That was the other notorious facet of Caps. On record, it was only 50 seconds long, and the story always played it way faster than that. For a moment, I thought the ending had finally come, but no, it was just this small reprieve in the middle of the song that changed tempos. It was just taking an eternity. Eventually, eternity ended. As happens, someone, I don't know who, but someone grabbed me by my arm and pulled me up finally. Actually, they pulled me up with so much force that, coupled with the dizziness that was settling in, I nearly toppled over again. I was stumbling about, not able to balance, seeing spots of nothing, just fuzz. With what few bearings I had, I attempted to make my way to the back of the cup, to Brian and my Sony D50. And it was here, at that moment, that the game set in. What was it that caused what just happened to happen to me? If I only got in a better spot in the crowd? No. If only I'd remembered that story ended their sets with caps? No. <laughs> Maybe if Brian wasn't there, or... At least wasn't near enough me to be at the exact right moment when I could have asked him to hold my recorder. No. Each of those were their own unique mistake, to be sure, but my answer to the game was this. My head never would have been pounding like it was if I'd never joined the music scene. That was my fuck-up. The real cause of it all. And boy, had I fucked up big time. Next stop, the start. Six hundred and fifty-eight days before the Christmas show at the Cup was a battle of the bands at Lemoore's. I know that band battles seem like a sort of movie cliche and you know, not a thing that actually happens in real life. But I don't know what to tell you. We had them. There were quite a few battles of the band back in the day, actually. Each with their own varying degrees of legitness. Like, what does it even mean to be crowned the best band on Staten Island? Who decides that? Who can? That said, the bands that came in first often got some decent plunder. Be it recording time at a local studio or some big cash prize. But always, the real undefeated winners were the venue owners. I mean, what did we know? We were kids. But I guess it shouldn't be surprising that whatever multi-variable calculus was used to determine the top tier band, the number of tickets they sold always seemed to play an exceedingly. So it's a bit ironic that I didn't actually pay for my ticket to get into Lemoore's that night. In fact, I don't think I had a ticket. I am suspicious of if he had the authority to, and it's really clear to me now that he didn't. But I was snuck in by my friend from high school. Andrew Palladino. We all knew him and still know him as just Dino. Dino and I went to St. Joseph by the Sea High School. Private, Catholic, exactly what you're imagining. 
And we were in the school band together, though nobody called it the band. You weren't in the band. You were in band, with a capital B. And being in band at sea was a trip. For one thing, it was a class, but also not exactly. We got grades, but not unlike the formulas used to determine the winners of the battles of the bands, how our band grades factored into our total GPA remained this mysterious enigma my whole tenure there. The other great thing about being in band is that you had to love it. I mean, you just had to. Like, they scheduled it before homeroom. Downbeat was at 7.30 a.m. sharp, Monday to Friday. And while on the broader topic of ranking bands, C's band was never anything to write home about. Not our concert band, definitely not our marching band, and not even the pit band we pulled together for the musicals and (laughs) kept together with gum and shoelaces. Perhaps, perhaps our jazz band could hang with some of the others on the album. But, so yeah, we weren't very good. That said, we wouldn't have traded it for anything else in the world. C was all about trying to produce the island's next top academics and leaders and athletes. Not the top artists, though. Not the top musicians. If we wanted that, we should have gone a few blocks down Highland Boulevard to Tottenville High School. But despite all that, I maintain that band was still one of the school's principal accomplishments, albeit one that was a bit more understated. Consider this. A freshman walking into band got a snapshot of all that C had to offer. Every club or sport had a member that was also in band. Band was also this microcosm of the whole student population. I mean, hell, we all even had homeroom together right there in the band room. Imagine that, all 80 of us packed together in one place. All four grades, from the baby frosh to the jaded seniors, all in one habitat. The class vaguely counted and we got up entirely too early each morning, but we still showed up because once you were in it, You were important to this melting pot. You were needed. So yeah, maybe we were never one of C's crowning jewels, but there was one thing that always stayed the same. Could always count on your fellow band geeks. Anyway, Dino was a year older, a sophomore when I was a freshman. Many students were in band because we'd just been in whatever orchestra we were in when we were in middle school, so why not continue that and have something to paste on your transcript later? But Dino was one of the few rare talents that could, you know, actually play. And I mean play. For all the big, full orchestra stuff, he was a percussionist. But his home was in the jazz band. His weapon of choice? An axe. Dino's father is a professional saxophone player, so he'd had that musical gene in him. And whenever solos came up, he'd bust out his guitar and just smoke everyone. Leave the rest of us in his dust. I was so evidently intimidated by someone older and much more talented, but we still managed to form a friendship somehow. Again, that's just what happened when you were in band, starting your mornings with the same gang day in and day out. When we really got close was in the spring of freshman year, when the school musical rolled around. The bassist and the guitarist were seated next to each other, towards the back with the drums. That year we did Babes in Arms, and the sheer rascality of all that we got up to in and out of the pit remains, to this day, the stuff of legends. And after the shows, we'd all get rides up to Applebee's and Newt up for a glorious, victorious post-show feast. For whatever reason, the upperclassmen all took this shy kid under their wing, let him sit with them and eat and hang out.
can't say for sure when I learned about them, but by then I had to have been aware of Dino's band. They were a trio called Curious Volume, and they'd been together since middle school. That was an impressive feat. The band I mentioned last episode that covered American Idiot when we played IS-34's talent show was long over. I've been bopping between bands since then, but none of them ever really had any traction. And there's a lot of reasons why, but chief among them was that writing songs is super fucking difficult. Or rather, writing good songs is the hard part. All the bands I was in were ripping off the Beatles or Avenged Sevenfold or Guns N' Roses, if not just covering them outright. But Curious Volume? There was something off about them and their songs from the get-go. They had this zany energy, this penchant for abruptly flipping the script in some new orthogonal direction in each verse and chorus and bridge. And they were catchy. And they spoke to the concerns of young teenage boys going to Catholic school on Staten Island. Like, how many songs are there out there where the chorus talks about hoping you catch the train? And then it's followed up with a scat solo. Nobody, or at least none of the bands I was in, were doing anything like this. The first time I heard them was online. They pressed CDs, but I didn't get my hands on them until later. And this was also before file sharing sites or streaming became, like, a thing. But in the absence of all that, we had one coveted resource. MySpace. The internet of today is so segmented. Like, the social media sites like Instagram and Twitter are the social media sites. If you're in a band, you can get your stuff up on Spotify or Apple Music, but for the most direct connection to your fans, you want to use Bandcamp or SoundCloud if that's more your crowd. But back in ye olden times, MySpace was the one-stop shop for everything. On MySpace, you had your own profile, and you could customize that profile however you wanted. Didn't like the default page layout? Not a problem. You could change it. You could also host your best friends on your profile, right? Your top eight. And let me tell you, many friendships were ended over the incorrect listing of besties or right? glaring omission in this reverent space. You could upload photos in which you would leave a pic comment in exchange for a pic comment with someone else. And who could forget the bulletin board? The place where anyone could post just about anything, really. You didn't just have to have a profile for yourself on MySpace. You could also have one for your band. And this was gold. Bands could set up pages and, perhaps most crucially, post some songs where they'd be hosted for free. This was far and away the easiest way to distribute your music if you weren't loaded. Band profiles and personal profiles were basically indistinguishable. So why not put it somewhere in your top eight and give it more exposure? You could also set any song that was uploaded to MySpace, which I'm sure turned out to be a copyright nightmare, to be the song that played when people visited your profile. So set it to be one of your band's singles. This is what I'm getting at. The music landscape was turning more and more to the internet, 
And for local bands that didn't have the resources to build and host a website, MySpace was the thing. You had to have your music up, you had to maintain your page so that it looked nice, and you had to have a lot of friends because you wanted a lot of interaction anytime you posted about, say, an upcoming battle of the bands. Curious Volume did all these things, and they were meticulous about it. Their page was legit. And it helped, like I said, that they had some really good songs. There was one in particular that all the girls pretended Dino wrote about them called I Need You. At its peak, it had tens of thousands of plays on their page. Pump the blood right through my veins. All my friends say I'm insane. Take my hand, let's run away. Who needs them anyway? And it wasn't just that the songs were good in and of themselves as far as the songwriting was concerned. They won one of those battles of the bands, and they'd had the cash and actually got some decent recordings made, all while the rest of us were still early adapting prosumer audio hardware and tracking into the sketchiest digital audio workstations ever designed. They had the music, they had the crisp profile. So what was next? After all, any edge you could find could be the thing that helped you and your band get discovered, help break you so to speak. I mean, not really, but that's what it felt like. So that's how we all behave. So what was something that could put you over the edge? Having some live videos of your band. That's the idea, and in theory it's great, but you gotta remember what we were dealing with back then. This was early 2009. The first iPhone wasn't even two years old at that point. You couldn't even record videos on iPhones until the 3GS. And I'm referring to iPhones because they're the creme de la creme now. Nobody had them back then except for the snootiest of the snootiest Catholic school students. We were all stuck with crappy phones with crappy overloaded microphones shooting the crappiest potato quality videos ever. I mean, seriously, the Lumiere brothers could have gotten better footage of your band than any of us in the crowd. And so this is where I stepped to the plate. Did I volunteer myself or was I propositioned? I can't recall, but who knows. Maybe it was common knowledge that I liked to screw around with my parents' camcorder, because my first love, before I ever dreamed of being Paul McCartney, was of becoming George Lucas. And not that the sound on this thing was great or even good, but it would have beat everyone's phones for sure and not looked too bad to boot. And so that was it. At some point, Dino and I arranged a little quid pro quo. If I could videotape his band at their upcoming show at Lemoore's, He'd get me in for free. That's why I didn't have a ticket. That's why he snuck me in. In all likelihood, I probably would have gone to the show anyway, but hell, if I didn't have to pay the, what, five bucks to get in, why not? Sure. And so we had ourselves a deal. I didn't know it yet, but just like that, the Staten Island local show closet was born. The show at Lemoore's had been hyped up by Dino and Homeroom and on MySpace, but I don't think anyone was prepared for the turnout. Lemoore's was packed. Packed. Like fucking sardines, alright? There were a few familiar faces from school, but so many more were strangers. Kids that went to other schools. And you could forget small talking. You ever go somewhere and it's so loud it's hard to even think? That's what it was like. And. Of course, I made the rookie mistake of not having any earplugs. 
I was here for a job and I wanted to do my duty well, and so I waded through the masses until I made it to what felt like a good spot in the center of the room. And then I waited. We all waited. There was growing recognition that this was going to be an event. Mounting anticipation ran through each of us, jumping from person to person like the power of God when they opened the ark at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And just like the Raiders, we weren't expecting what was about to happen next to get our fucking faces melted off. They cut the lights, and then they cut the house music. The band didn't take the stage, though. Just Dino at first. He started with a song he'd only posted to MySpace weeks before, the solo acoustic number called Thoughts from the Eltonville Train Station. Everyone already knew all the words and sang along. And in the come down near the end, Dino's bandmates finally joined him. The bowl cut Cole Rice and John Trott, just Trotter on bass. I remember being particularly wary, or I guess intimidated by Trotter. I was a bass player, but he was Dino's bass player. He wore his hat kind of goofy, and I know he went to Farrell, which is C's crosstown rival in all boys Catholic school. And all those dudes that went there were shaky. All trouble. Regardless, thoughts from the Eltonville train station was winding down as Cole took his seat behind the kid. Dino kicked on his distortion, and you might as well have lit a firework off him. There was this eruption. first few notes of what else but I need you and it was like all the energy in the room released all hell broke pushing and jumping flailing singing clapping diving I found it hard to believe that there was so much sound coming out of a trio Cole was just like John Bonham incarnate, or perhaps Thor, thunderously punishing his kid without any mercy. And Trotter just sounded low, huge. Dino was somehow playing three guitar parts of it. Like, imagine an alternate reality where Jimmy Page joined Metallica instead of Zeppelin. Song to song, they continue just to be catchy as fuck and simultaneously 
very strange. And the more I think about that specifically, the less it feels like an accident. There's one universally loved music group on Staten Island. Plenty of people like the Beatles, sure. I mean, <laughs> who doesn't? And at any show, the over-under of how many Zeppelin shirts you'd see was always, generally speaking, four and a half. But they didn't unite us in the way that the Wu-Tang Clan united us. Maybe that sounds strange. <laughs> Maybe not, but every rock band, every punk kid, every hardcore masha on Staten Island knew that we owed everything, and I mean everything, to Method Man, Jizza, Inspector Deck, You God, Ghostface Killer, Raekwon, Master Killer, ODB, Capadonna, and last but certainly not least, the RZA. <laughs> I wonder if they know that. Hope to God they do. So. Talk to anyone anywhere, and they won't have a nice word to say about Staten Island, except that, hey, at least there's the Wu-Tang Clan. Their debut, Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, is a sacred text here and beyond. The album is hailed as being this oddball mishmash that came out of left field and was just better than everything else. And everyone accepts it for what it is, a landmark in rap's history. But here's the thing too. Every casual, dismissive comment about Staten Island also betrays the foundation of what makes the Wu-Tang Clan the Wu-Tang Clan. To the point, Staten Island, like all islands really, exists in isolation. There are four bridges to get on and one ferry service. I suppose you can do as the deer do and swim to and from Jersey, but I don't recommend it. Especially not while three of those bridges connect us to the Garden State. Which means, that's right, we only have one bridge connecting us to the city we're a part of, the Varazano to Brooklyn. When I said earlier that going to college in the city, and by the way, Staten Islanders call anything not on Staten Island the city, but when I said that going to college in the city meant it felt like I was a world away from home, I wasn't being overdramatic. Often a trip home would clock in at over an hour, usually closer to two. Staten Islanders that travel to the city every day for work routinely come in first place for longest average commute time in the world. Put another way, it's difficult for people to get here and it's hard for us to leave. You might think that isolation is a hindrance, a grand knock against us because that suggests we lack exposure. But don't tell that to the Wu-Tang Clan. Just listen to what the RZA had to say in his epic tome, The Tao of Wu. I spent my formative years on an island, Staten Island, which is a blessing I've taken with me through life. Many cultures consider an island to be the ideal home. First, because you're surrounded by water, which is life. Second, because you're isolated from the masses, which allows you to find yourself, to develop inner strengths you couldn't find anywhere else. An island shows you the true nature of life itself. In Staten Island, the Wu-Tang Clan were set apart from all the influences and fads that were happening in the other four boroughs. I believe that while everything else in hip-hop culture was in constant flux, this island was nurturing something ancient. When you watch a movie like Godzilla, you see them go out to one of these tiny remote islands and find Mothra. It was the same way with us. A nine-man hip-hop crew based on mathematics, chess, comics, and kung fu flicks wasn't springing up in the middle of a Manhattan art scene. 
Only on a remote island can something like King Kong grow to his full capacity. The Wu-Tang Clan owns Staten Island. Wear it like a badge. If you're me, if you're from here, how do you not love that? How do you not try and follow that? Try to honor that. I once speculated whether or not the Wu-Tang Clan would have become what they became if they didn't get their star for another 15 years or so. If they were part of the MySpace generation. You know, just fucking post Bring the Ruckus as soon as it was finished and let it fly. The mental gymnastics here actually go a step deeper than that. Like, think about it. The modern internet made us all connected, right? There's no sea borders between profile pages. And that would appear to stand opposed to, or resolve, isolation. But for all the quote-unquote connectivity of the internet, it's still a remote connection. The Wu-Tang Clan were alone together. Those of us here are, to this day, spatially and therefore also temporally separate from the rest of the city and the rest of the world. That's a fun thing to think about, but ultimately one of those unanswerable questions. But I bring it up now because I believe that same brand of potency through isolation, the kind that lets King Kong grow to his full potential, existed for our local bands too. Like, curious volume. At least in our own way with our own flair. But it isn't like whatever was afoot with a band like Curious Volume wasn't tangibly evident to us. If they had to be distilled down to a genre, we would have called them ska punk, but that didn't feel right to me. Not back then and not now. I mean, yes, they had upstrokes and complicated bass lines, sure. But they also took their cues from a massive musical library, rejecting nothing and implementing everything, like adding a disco breakdown in Song for Three Scholars. They exploited a thorough vocabulary that meant their bombast was still consumable. And there was no better example of this than their song, Big Time. Curious volume set at Lemoore's was drawing near its end. We were all gross and sweaty, and my arm was crying with fatigue from holding up my camcorder for however the hell long this that was. But it didn't matter because they were just cranking out song after song, and it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. And it was all right in front of me and being pounded into my ears. I'm sure they had the numbers for this battle of the bands, at least enough to carry them over to whatever the next round was. But they also had to have scored whatever points and whatever system was being used just based on the fervor they induced. It was rapturous, euphoric insanity. The only thing left to do was to end it. This is partly the story of how I joined the scene, but that wasn't something that just happened because I simply showed up. The set had been thrilling and exhilarating, and I wanted to be a part of this event. But it was this last song, the finale, Big Time. That was the invitation to take ownership in this enterprise. Put another way, if they don't play this song, if they don't end with it, I'm not convinced I'm getting my skull knocked around 658 days later. 
Is that a ridiculous claim? Yes, but <laughs> hear me out. Let's begin with the song itself. Cole leads us in with a jazzy tom fill, something that has that sing, sing, sing swing. The boys count us in, one, and we're off. Two, one, two, three, Trotta is walking the walk on the bass, and Dino's playing not dissonant chords, but F down to D7 is a little unusual. Anyway, he starts singing, and the lyrics are fairly straightforward. He's committed to defense, his retribution is coming, and he deserves it, and he knows it. But when the chorus hits, they take a sharp, abrupt turn. The tempo recedes as they contort the song into a mighty anthem. And here they make a bold proclamation. That's it. That's all they say. Simple. I get that that might not seem like much. Even on the recording, Dino's guitars are merely <laughs> overdriven. They don't smack you the way you think an opus like this ought to. They don't shake the bricks off walls or <laughs> make you nauseous. So how is it possible this song is the crux of everything? Well, what's important and what you gotta remember is that I saw them play this live. And when Curious Volume played big time to a hometown crowd, something incredible would happen. See, when they got to the chorus and the big slowdown, Dino and Trotta would step away from their microphones. They wouldn't sing the chorus because, in their place, the crowd would rush the stage and they'd be the ones shouting their confession to the world, arm in arm. Don't get the wrong idea, people were singing along to all their songs the whole show, but only now were they being summoned to Lamore's elevated stage to relieve Dino and Trotter. This is the instant I joined the scene, because in that moment, even though I wasn't personally hopping on stage, there wasn't any separation between the band and the crowd. We, everyone, were on equal footing, like stepping into band at sea. There's power and status and esteem in playing in a rock band. But in the biggest moment, they relinquished all that to us, their friends and fans. And in doing so, they fostered and cultivated community. I mean, I'm sure it was fun for everyone to get up there too, but gosh, what an extraordinary act. This happened here and it could have only have happened here. A local band on an isolated island writing as they only knew how. This offbeat and bizarre song. There seems to be something too in the potency of this song due to its opportunity for and offering of penance. Apologizing often feels like a very personal, very private act, usually between two people. But communal atonement has been a part of various traditions for, well, forever. I asked our resident expert Casper about this. 
the first thing I want to say is that when you tell that story, I hear confession, right? Like I hear a practice in which people are saying something that, they, you know, I screwed up. Like I know I fucked up. And the music is giving people a language to say the thing that they know is real in a way that might be really hard to do just if you're sitting on your own <laughs> talking yeah. to someone. Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things of music is that it literally gives us words or it gives us access to an emotion, right? Whether it's a melody or a chorus or something uh, or lyrics that help us reconnect with something that we feel that maybe we've pushed away or maybe we're scared of feeling. Um, so music is a very, very powerful way of doing it. And what's so powerful about music, especially when it's shared in a context like this concert, right. is that it's not individualized. And so I think with confession, it's so powerful to realize like everyone is fucked up, right? Yeah. And and singing that together, and this is one of the beautiful things of congregational singing, whether it's in a you know a, a, right. a, 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 like a punk kind of rock concert <laughs> or in or in congregational singing, it's a collective language yeah. for the things that we have experienced individually. And so you know, so many practices today when we think about spirituality are really focused on individual practices, whether it's you know meditation or whether it's sometimes even yoga. That sense of you know get your own house in order. <laughs> but what I love about this sample that you're sharing is that it's a collective confession, which feels very faithful, <laughs> Even, yeah. especially maybe especially Catholic tradition, yeah. that sense of like, we know we have, we've all screwed up. And, yeah. uh, and I love that the lyric is I fucked up. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, right. Like, it's not just a realization of like, oh, no, this just happens. Like, no, I, and I, and what's unsaid, I think, in that lyric, maybe it's like, I'm gonna, and I know I'm going to screw up again. Yeah. Um, that that's part of what it means to be human. I'm very interested. I mean, this is so much of what the book is about, is thinking about where spirituality shows up outside of traditional religious spaces. And I mean, m music concerts are such an obvious one. And there are artists who really lean into that and, and who play towards it. That sense of building tension and release, a sense of introspection and outer connection. Yeah. All of that is really going on, I think, for artists who are thinking about it that way. I mean, one of the things that's really important to think about with confession that I learned from my friend Nadia Boltz-Weber is we should never set people up to confess without giving absolution. And yeah. so you need that response of confession and absolution. And so one of the things that maybe is less common, I think, in a, in a music context is maybe a, an explicit sense of that you know, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's renewal, a, a chance to start again. Um, that's part of what makes confession so cathartic and so important is because we feel like, yeah, we can give another go, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and that might be implicit within a music concert, right? You get that mm -hmm. kind of, whew, right? Like I sweat, I dance, I feel good. I, I, I feel renewed yeah. and energized. But that's maybe one of the beautiful things about religious traditions that we can lean more into is that explicit sense of you fucked up, you're sorry, you're going to find a way to do better, you're going to start again. And really receive a blessing in that moment to start again. I'm always a bit apprehensive to indulge in nostalgia. Normally, that's due to remembering events not just better than they were per se, but better than they deserve, right? Like, making things seem more encompassing than it ever really was. This was the opposite of that, though. This ended up being a genuinely momentous event. And the scary part is weighing how much of it came down to just my buddy from band asked, and perhaps on a whim, if I'd video his band at a show, and I said, yeah, okay. I just, how do you adequately frame a moment like that? What if I said no? What if I didn't go and everything didn't change for me that night? 
And not for nothing, but this wasn't big just for me either. This was the first show for a lot of people, including my current dungeon master, Joe Cosentino. Cos put it like this once. It's amazing that this single event has become such a massive turning point in so many people's lives. I honestly have no idea who I would be today if I did not attend this show. My entire frame of reference, every major experience, and almost everything I hold important to me and define myself by hinges on this one evening. And I doubt I'm the only person that feels this way. When I walked in that door, I knew the two people I came with. Now I can name almost everybody in that room. When they assemble the compendium of local music history, I hope they'll mark this as the beginning of the Pax Romana. I can't watch the footage I took that night without a sense of awe. I see people that I didn't know at the time, but that would eventually become my best friends. I see others that are show friends, even to this day. There are pals I already knew from school, some that I keep in contact with, and some I don't. There are characters, villains, and heroes from the scene that are conspicuously absent from this event, and I'm left to wonder, where were they that night? There are people in this room I will fall in love with, and fall out of love with. Just, the law of large numbers means that I'm sure there are some people in this video that no longer with us. There are people within these frames I will yet still come to know very well one day. And others I once knew well, but they've since become strangers again. And yet even more beyond that, that will remain perfect strangers forever. They're all here. All of them mixed in the red, blue, greens of my mini DV tape. The worst aspect of the game might seem like it rejects the immediate boneheadedness of whatever I just did. But I'm a prisoner to the game in a way that feels worse. And it's that obviously nothing happens in a vacuum. Nothing happens independently. Like, I can draw a line, prudent or not prudent, from getting injured in a mosh pit to a band playing some song a show the year before, but why stop there? What caused the song? I mean, we probably inspected that enough, but so then, what caused the show? You know, besides the potential shadiness of venue owners. There's so much about that Saturday night in February that shouldn't have worked. So much that was just weird. This was unquestionably going to be a big show for Curious Volume, but for them, it was in large part just another highlight in a series of ascending highlights. Another peak in a mountain range. And even the venue itself, Lemoore's. That's not THE venue on Staten Island. Not now and not even then. THE venue isn't even the cup. It's this grimy, seedy place called Dock Street. Dock Street has a few levels, but everyone cuts their teeth and earns their stripes and other idioms in the basement bar, which is now called Amendment 18. Picture the Beatles' Cavern Club, only you're descending into a personal lounge designed for Satan. The only other variable that made the show what it was, that made the fraternal aspect of Big Time truly pop, is the sheer volume of people that attended. 
In all my years going to shows, I've never been to one that's been as, well, crowded. Is it dumb to point this out, that all the cheers were louder, and the collective harmony of the masses was all the more euphonious because we just had the numbers? I'm so drawn to this though, because continuing to play the game at this juncture is where everything starts to get a little twitchy and uncomfortable. The only question left to ask is, why were so many at this show specifically? And the only answer I have, the only good answer I have, is that in addition to being isolated, Staten Island is a segregated island. Segregation is a sort of isolation unto itself, isn't it? What I mean is, there are pockets of isolation on our island that are hard to navigate to and from, and the effect of that, the big picture, is that we're segregated. You don't even need to just take my word for it. You can see it. I'm about to do again what I did last episode, which is commit the cardinal sin of podcasting, describing a visual. And what's worse is, I'm not a visual person. I really don't deserve my eyes. I mean, you heard what I did to one of them on the Parallax Collapse, right? It was very nearly a pirate's life for me after that. I'm going to be talking about the most dazzling sight one can conceive, too. Highway systems. <laughs> Seriously, I strongly urge you to pull up a map of Staten Island, or at least for the love of God, look it up later. Anyway, look at Staten Island. We're a top-heavy island, and we've got ourselves a tilt. More than 45 degrees or so, give or take, running northeast to southwest. Now look at the highways. We've got three. When you're coming off the Outer Bridge Crossing, you can hop on either the Korean War Vets Parkway, which will run you up the center of the island and specifically to the mall, or the 440, which is known as the West Shore Expressway. The Korean War Vets Parkway eventually fizzles out mid-island, but the West Shore Expressway keeps going until it connects with the runoff of anything coming off the Gothels Bridge in our northwestern corner. Together, they form the creatively named Staten Island Expressway. The Staten Island Expressway runs west to east from there. There's a minor offshoot highway, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Expressway, which will take you north to the Bayonne Bridge and subsequently to Bayonne, New Jersey. But like, I don't know, 90% of the people on the Staten Island Expressway have got their eyes set on one thing and one thing only, the Varazano. After that, it's Brooklyn and beyond. Looking at the West Shore Expressway, there really isn't much to the west of it once you get to Rossville. You're basically just driving up the island's coast. You can't say the same thing about the Staten Island Expressway and the northern coast, though. From the Gothels Bridge to the Varazano, there's a whole chunk of our island. This is the North Shore, and the expressway is, quite literally, the dividing line. I suppose the game could continue to be played here. Was our island designed this way with intent? But I believe that there's more virtue in examining the effects of all this, at least for right now. Staten Island as a whole is 60% white, about 19% Hispanic or Latinx, 12% black, 11% Asian, and I'm already over 100% because I'm giving you rough estimates. But of course beyond that there are smaller groups still, of Pacific Islanders, American Indians, and people of two or more races. 
The reason I bring this up is because we are not all of us, all half a million of us, evenly distributed across the island. In broad strokes, Staten Island's black population lives above the Staten Island Expressway in the North Shore. Staten Island's white population lives below it, dispersed between the Mid-Island and the South Shore. With a total population this large, there are bound to be exceptions, naturally, such as sandy ground. Sandy Ground, a village within Rossville on the South Shore, is, believe it or not, the oldest continuously settled free black community in the United States and an officially recognized spot on the Underground Railroad. The first settlers were farmers, and I learned recently that they were the ones to bring strawberries to Staten Island. They didn't grow here naturally, not until these farmers brought them here from the South. And though Rossville has been thoroughly condominiumized since, some descendants of those original settlers still reside there today. I really could and should do a whole episode just on Sandy Ground. The history is amazing and I really didn't know much about it until this year. Anyway, I would have been remiss if I didn't at least mention Sandy Ground, but unfortunately, it is an exception to the general picture. This is one of those topics where it becomes hard to talk about in the sense that I have to rely on anecdotes and not research. But there have been substantial externalities to our islands being made up this way. Like, the Staten Island Expressway is referred to as the Mason-Dixon Line. As I mentioned earlier, it's hard for the different shores to interact with each other. Sinister intent or not, and just for the sake of it, let's assume there was no ill will at play here at all. The difficulty of getting from one side of the island to the other is nothing short of criminal. Because by now it's a recognized issue that's long gone unresolved. The highways on Staten Island are not lanes that bring us together. They are speedways for which we can easily slip by one another. Other than those, we have our, count them, one train line. And the major road on Staten Island that runs top to bottom on the east side, Highland Boulevard, takes close to an hour to traverse. And that's on a good day with light traffic and perfect weather. What I'm trying to say is, at best, it's inconvenient. And honestly, you really don't need much more than that to get people not to interact with each other, spend time in shared spaces. Our island has been like this for decades, probably longer. And so what's developed, what we've grown to be is, like the song by Story, a shattered island. On one hand, you've got a densely packed, socio-economically challenged area, where the Wu-Tang would come to fruition. And on the other, the mid to upper middle class suburban south. The differences mount as the years pass, and we've got neighborhoods that are suspicious of each other. This fear grows and self-perpetuates, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and becomes a problem. And it means that eventually, when a battle of the bands is hosted at a venue on the South Shore, a flood of kids are able to go. Not just because the transportation is easier, you know, more convenient, but because their parents don't have to sit with the quote-unquote anxiety 
of their child being on that side of the aisle. The other side. With the other people. The L'Amour show was a banger. Is that only because of the factors that played into our home being explicitly or implicitly racially divided? Of course not. There's this scene from the second episode of The West Wing where President Bartlett quizzes his staff on the meaning of post hoc ergo propter hoc. CJ, on your tombstone, it's going to read post hoc ergo propter hoc. Okay, but none of my visitors are going to be able to understand my tombstone. 27 lawyers in the room. Anybody know post hoc ergo propter hoc? Josh? Uh, uh, post, after, after hoc, ergo, therefore. After hoc, therefore, something else hoc. Thank you. Next. After it, therefore, because of it. After it, therefore, because of it. It means one thing follows the other, therefore it was caused by the other. But it's not always true. In fact, it's hardly ever true. It's hardly ever true. That's the reason why the game I so often find myself playing, spiraling away and away and away, is ultimately futile. These things can't be pinned down and certainly not to any one cause. In these situations, there's a million tiny fucking levers all pulling the world along one way or the other, and it's rare when we can locate the one at the root. Sometimes we can, but not always and not often. We have to just sit with the knowledge that we'll never know the weight of any decision and its influence on the whole, that which will make the stars align someday. But in the meantime, all I have left is this vague dread. My final year of college, I was offered a scholarship, the Robert Noyce Scholarship. I was nominated and I got it because I met all the right qualifications and I agreed to all the stipulations and commitments. Everything was golden, except, of course, for one pesky criterion. Because, you know, there's always fucking something with these things. And in my case, I needed to be a full-time student. The way my time at university shaped up that last year just meant that I'd taken almost all the classes I needed, which was honestly good news for somebody about to embark on their most treacherous academic odyssey yet. A pair of classes called Physical Chemistry 1 and 2. Game over! So I was more than happy to have a little extra free time to take care of the incoming calamity I was about to endure, plus their corresponding laps, when the scholarship came up. But what, was I not going to take free money? Are you kidding me? I'd suck it up and take another class or two. Who cares? It was senior year. I know how to do college. I'd already taken a bunch of math and chemistry classes. Maybe I could load up and have enough for a minor or something by the end. Simple, right? Maybe it would have been easy if the new semester wasn't a week out. None of the math classes I could have taken were being offered, and all the chemistry classes were not unlike Lemoore's, packed full. And so, with great trepidation, I found myself in as foreign a land as they come for a physics major, the English department. Dr. Rotenberg Schwartz listened patiently as I explained my whole situation. I think I might have oversold it, actually, saying that, hey, I could have chosen anything and I came to him. Luckily, he didn't chuck me out of his office right then and there. Instead, for whatever reason, he saw this as an opportunity to hear from a different voice. 
How would a stranger fare in a strange land? He offered me a spot in one of his classes that semester and I agreed. A decision that turned out to be one of the best of my entire college experience. Anyway, I ended up taking that class. I think it was American Colonial Literature, which on the surface would have been as much of a barn burner as it sounds if Dr. Rotenberg Schwartz didn't bring this signature passion and intellect to the material. I swear, the guy is jacked into the matrix, making all these connections nobody would have recognized on their own, which, as far as I'm concerned, is exactly what you want in a college professor. So you can see how to start making those connections for yourself. I ended up learning a lot, not just about how to read early American lit, but on how to be open to a text, to reflect on what I've read, and to exercise my empathy. I had to go through the whole full-time student charade again for my last semester. And so like, why wouldn't I have seen what Dr. Rotenberg Schwartz was offering that time around too? There was a new class coming, one that he put together that he was really, I don't know, I don't want to say excited or enthusiastic to teach. Intent, perhaps. Simply captivated. He was also a bit of an expert, so this was his forte. The class was the literature of genocide. I'm pretty sure I said sure without thinking twice about it. This was also my last semester and I'd come down with a pretty severe case of senioritis. And if he was teaching it, hell. It could have been a class on reading all the nutrition labels in the snack machine. I would have taken whatever he told me to. Two weeks into the course, it became abundantly clear to my family and friends that on Wednesdays, I was off limits. That's the day I got to campus early, caught up on all the reading and homework, and the class was in the evening. And as you can imagine, with a subject this important and heavy, this class turned out to be one that demanded my full attention and my best effort. In Colonial Lit, I admit I might have at times only skimmed over the journal entry from, you know, the week's third settler account, but there was no way to authentically engage with what we had to read in this class without giving myself over fully to the experience of the authors and poets and filmmakers. And there's no putting some good, happy spin on genocide. There is no silver lining. So yeah, after those classes, I didn't want anyone talking to me. I had to somehow try and process it all. More times than not, it wasn't even possible. We were weeks into the course when Dr. Rotenberg Schwartz assigned a chapter from Dr. Ruth Kluger's Still Alive. This was just one of the several sources we had to catch up on before class, but I don't know. In a few short pages, Dr. Kluger's account, her words, imprinted onto me, altered my DNA, changed the way I see, well, myself, the world, and everything. I don't know, has this ever happened to you? You read or hear something and it just becomes a part of you? You carry it around with you? You filter everything through it? Or perhaps it's more like the opposite. Like a veil you never knew was present before you finally lifts. If this all sounds too wondrous, Dr. Kluger would say that you've seen too many action flicks. But here's what happened. Dr. Kluger, Ruth, was born in Vienna. 
She grew up there. She was shaped by the city's culture. When she was 12, she found herself at the end of the world, the Auschwitz concentration camp. Her mother was there with her, though they had a strained and complicated relationship. In her chapter on the death camp, Dr. Kluger offers a snapshot of her day-to-day experiences. The heat, the constant thirst, and the stench from the death factory. I can't speak for everyone, of course, but I know for me and likely many others, when we think about genocide in a broad sense, our first thoughts go to the Holocaust. And not that it should or it shouldn't, but what, if anything, does it mean that we have a default? What does that tell us when there have been other genocides before and since? Dr. Kluger and her mother arrived in Auschwitz like many others, by train. And again, that feels like a familiar narrative. And what does it mean that something like that has been codified to a familiar, prevailing experience? An experience that we too often define the individuals around, or what Dr. Kluger calls a gruesome accident. Auschwitz was a place, an event. The measure of a life, though, is so much more than the worst that happens in it. I say that just so we remember it. Dr. Kluger captures the absurdity of a genocide with acuity. It is dangerous nonsense to believe that anyone contributed much to her own survival, she writes, because in Auschwitz, love couldn't save you, and neither could reason. Madness, perhaps. That's the hardest part for me to process, because I'm still processing a lot from this class daily, all these years later. And I think it has to do with that genocide is just the end. The end of society, the end of culture, everything. Just the end. For civilizations in which genocide is possible, it is the last stop on the line. And I mean, how could anything come after it? When you're dealing with the end, that's all there is. Human life systematically extinguishing human life. That's it. In that way, those that survived survived because they survived. They weren't smarter or luckier or more shrewd or cunning or anything else. You survived because you survived. Actually, as Dr. Kluger puts it, the only advantage one might have in an irrational situation are those that suffered paranoia. They had a better chance to pick their way out of mass destruction, she writes, because in Auschwitz, they were finally in a place where the social order or social chaos had caught up with their delusions. Like I said, though, Dr. Kluger's words were more than just beneficial in the broader context they supply for understanding genocides. Without any embellishment, her words, for me, became transcendent. And it has to do with an act she recalls that resulted in her leaving Auschwitz for another labor camp. Many others in the camp balked at the idea of leaving for somewhere else. There was an apprehensive attitude for the unknown. But Dr. Kluger and her mother viewed this as an opportunity. So long as they were living, what could be worse than what they'd already experienced here in Auschwitz? Regardless, all the women entered one of two lines. At the end of each were SS officers that were casually deciding who would move on to the labor camp and who would be sent to the gas chambers. They were only accepting women between 15 and 45, so Dr. Kluger's mother was a sure applicant. She herself 
Ruth was only 12. I was the smallest and obviously the youngest female around, she says. Underdeveloped, undernourished, and nowhere near puberty. Her mother pleaded with her to simply lie and say that she was 15. But for a preteen, such a lie seemed impossibly preposterous. The difference between 12 and 15 is enormous for a 12-year-old. I was to add a quarter of my entire life. They settled on a compromise. Ruth would tell the SS officer that she was 13, not 12. That wasn't enough, however, and the number that had been tattooed on her was not recorded down for the labor camp. Now what? Her mother insisted that if her daughter wasn't going to the new labor camp, she wouldn't be going either. For as multi-layered as their relationship was, she was not going to be separated from her daughter. But Ruth wasn't convinced that would play out as they intended. Short of that, then, their only option was to try again, to sneak onto the other line, which Ruth managed to accomplish. Plan remained the same. She'd give 13 another go with this new SS officer. What happened next is loosely suspended from memory, she writes. It was an act of the kind that is always unique, no matter how often it occurs, an incomprehensible act of grace. The SS officer at the end of this line was in a better mood than the first, and being clerked by another prisoner, a young woman. Here's Dr. Kluger again. His clerk was perhaps 19 or 20. When she saw me, she left her post, and almost within the hearing of her boss, she asked me quickly and quietly, and with an unforgettable smile and her irregular teeth, how old are you? 13, I said, as planned. Fixing me intently, she whispered, tell him you are 15. When asked for my age, I gave the decisive answer, which I had scorned when my mother suggested, but accepted from the stranger. I am 15. She seemed small, the master over life and death remarked. He sounded almost friendly, as if he was evaluating cows and calves. But she is strong, the woman said. Look at the muscles in her legs. She can work. She didn't know me, so why did she do it? He agreed. Why not? She made a note of my number, and I had won an extension on life. The first time I read this scene, it was hard to understand what exactly made this the incomprehensible act of grace that Dr. Kluger described it as. But she lays it out, explaining how in a world gone mad, this woman, in deciding to help her, broke what she calls the chain of knowable causes. She writes, don't just look at the scene, focus on it, zero in on it and consider what happened. There is a lot going on here, a lot at play. This SS officer seemingly held all the power in this situation, a power that was not limited to life and death. And when he looked upon 12-year-old Ruth, underdeveloped and small, it's not like she was going to be the linchpin to Nazi success or failure, right? Like, he chose to pass her along because in that moment, as Dr. Kluger says, it suited him to listen to his clerk. He agreed, essentially, on a whim. Then there's the totality of the act of the clerk. And this is Dr. Kluger again. She was an inmate, 
and she risked a lot when she prompted me to lie and then openly championed a girl who was too young and too small for forced labor and completely unknown to her. She saw me stand in line, a kid sentenced to death. She approached me, she defended me, and she got me through. What more do you need for an example of perfect goodness? What more do you need for an example of perfect goodness? That is what has stuck with me. That one question. That one phrase. Perfect goodness. This person, this woman that had nothing to gain and everything to lose, put it all on the line so that one young stranger might live. Contemplate the systems in place required for such an act. Structures that only genocide itself, at its fullest capacity, can facilitate. Dr. Kluger puts it like this. I think it makes sense that the closest approach to freedom takes place in the most desolate imprisonment under the threat of violent death, where the chance to make decisions has been reduced to almost zero. In a rat hole, where charity is the least likely virtue, where humans bare their teeth and where all signs point in the direction of self-preservation. And there is yet a tiny gap. That is where freedom may appear like the uninvited angel. One might argue that in the perverse environment of Auschwitz, absolute goodness was a possibility, like a leap of faith beyond the hundred chain of cause and effect. I don't know how often it was consummated. Surely not often. Surely not only in my case, but it existed. I am a witness. This is not a message of hope, I don't think. Just a recognition of what was. What is. Since that class, I've been hypercharged, on the lookout for signs and evidence of genocide at home and abroad. I often can't tell if it's just the times that we live in or if by looking through this lens at all, I'm of course going to see what looks like paths to the end. I suppose it doesn't really matter if I can't help it. Genocide Watch has put together a list, the 10 stages of genocide. Though they're clear to remind us that each stage is a process in and of itself, and they don't necessarily have to play out in a linear order. But my understanding of what they mean by that is, there are no unexpected genocides. There are always clear warning signs along the way. That's why my concern about Staten Island's division has been by design and not adequately addressed. It's a problem to be sure, and we will reckon with those decisions one day if they were made deliberately. Some might say we're already reckoning with them. But for the time being, the repercussions feel like the more immediate issue. I am unqualified in assessing how close the United States is to carrying out a genocide. But we are unquestionably capable, and that's the point. 
And having that reflected in our infrastructure, as innocuous as that might seem, is nonetheless a step in the wrong direction. A step within a larger process in a grand machine. We need a fix. And we need a fix fast. I told myself to just keep moving, to keep walking, to not stop. We're back at the cup, by the way, at the Christmas show in 2010. I don't know how sound this logic is, but for whatever reason, I thought that if I kept moving, I'd be less likely to fall over. The question was, where to go? Any place would have been fine, really. More than anything else, I think I just wanted to get away from the crowd and out of the cup. Just cut my ties. Not unlike when Indiana Jones cuts the ties of that bridge in half in Temple of Doom to get away from those thuggy cult members. I realize that I've now referenced all three movies in the Indiana Jones trilogy in this episode, and this isn't an accident. I rewatched them all recently, the first time in a while, so they're on my mind. What a strange trilogy. Seriously, it's really the only franchise in the world that can say their least problematic film is the one in which the main hero gets Hitler's autograph. Anyway, people noticed that something was up. I was getting bombarded with questions. Are you okay? What happened? Did you pass out? I told the press pool that I got knocked down and I thought my head got bumped. I wasn't able to talk smoothly, but again, I also just had one thing on my mind. I was on a mission to get the fuck out. The one and only Slam and Sam Ravello, a day one real one, led me past the Cup's bookcase bathtub and to Van Duzer Street outside. There's really nothing like being cooped up in a hot, sweaty local show and stepping outside to the cold December air. You don't need your jacket and it feels utterly... butracious. Outside the Cup were these abandoned concrete plant holders. Large enough that people casually lounged around on them when they needed a smoke break from whatever business was going on inside. I found a vacant one and took a squat. I've always been spoiled in the sense that I have both a high quantity of friends that, by some miracle, are also of the highest quality. So soon after I found my little spot, word must have gotten out because, again, I was, within minutes, crowded around by an even larger concerned mob. The questions continued flying. Somebody wanted to get me ice, then got me ice, then insisted that I put it on my head. And as much as I appreciate everyone's apprehension in retrospect, obviously, that was the last thing I needed or frankly wanted in the moment, which they all collectively seemed to get, thankfully. They all gave me some space. The torrent was, I don't know, seven, 10 minutes behind me. The worst of it was over. If I were to have watched a video of what happened, Look, I didn't feel great, but it probably would have looked worse than it felt. I overheard one friend that had seen it happen say to another that I got trampled, but that feels a little excessive. At this point, I just had a little bit of a headache, a tiny, tiny bump and a sore elbow. But more than anything else, I had a huge case of the nerves. Nothing like this had ever happened to me at a show before. 
And like I said at the top of this episode, I was legit worried. I got roughed up a little bit, spooked the hell out. And it sucked. Whatever the case was, I knew I was done for the night. I wanted to go home. I got out and now this was my new destination. The next band was all set to play and about to start and seeing as I wasn't dying, most people shuffled back into the cup. But you know who stayed with me? Cole wanted to make sure I was alright, and Dina swapped similar war stories with me when he'd been in mad music melees of his own. They calmed me down, made me feel relaxed. I must have told him that I wanted to go home, and I'd better catch the train before it was too late. If I didn't get going, I could be waiting around for an hour or more. They started pleading with me. Didn't you drive here? Well, no, my mom drove me here, and I was going to get a ride home from someone, but they wanted to stay, and I don't want to bother them and have to make them leave. Okay, well, why don't you just call your parents up again? (laughs) No, no, no. I can't tell them what happened. You think they're going to be okay with me going to shows if they know what I just got caught up in? Plus, who wants to schlep all the way out to the cup at this hour? This is fine. I'll just take the train, all right? And that's when Trotta stepped up. No, you're not. Are you crazy, he asked. We're in Stapleton, at night, and you're only wearing a hoodie. What if you got a concussion and you pass out and get robbed? No, I'm driving you home. Now it was my turn to plead with him, but it was no use. He wouldn't hear it, and he wouldn't budge. No matter how many times I was sorry or that this wasn't necessary and that I would be fine, This kid that I once thought was just another feral scoundrel that I was jealous of because he played my instrument was going to make sure I made it home safe. And, you know, I always recognized this, even then, as a fairly ordinary act of friendship. But not until recently have I realized that this was a fairly stunning act of rebellion in league with Ruth Kluger's perfect goodness. And I get that that comparison might seem ridiculous, mostly because, you know, I was not facing near certain death in a concentration camp. In my defense, however, Dr. Kluger also asked, isn't all reflection about the human condition or conditions a process of deducing ourselves from others? What's left if we don't compare? And I mean this seriously. Think about this from Trotta's position. He had basically nothing to gain here and so much to lose. Was the comfort of knowing that I made it home worth more than missing the subsequent bands and the headliners? Seeing and hanging with all of his show friends that he hadn't seen in a while? The gas it would take to get me all the way home and drive all the way back to the cup? That's really it. That right there. I lived in Tottenville, the southernmost town in New York City. Or put another way, the very, very, very bottom of Staten Island. And the cup wasn't like Lemoore's. The cup is located on the North Shore. In order to get me home, Trotta had to overcome the might of the very systems that shatter our island. Do you see what I'm saying? The totality of this action? Rewind the tape and play the game all the way through to the end. If Staten Island isn't cut up the way it is, then we don't get the Wu-Tang Clan and a weird sense of musical heritage that plays a part no matter how big or small, in a band like Curious Volume forming and writing a song like Big Time. I don't hear that song unless I'm asked to video record their set at a show that's both easy to get to and safe in the minds of the crowd's parents, so a lot of kids show up and make it a night I'll never forget. If I don't record that set, 
I don't get into audio and create the Staten Island local show closet and want to get into sound as a career, which is exactly what I studied for a year before deciding I liked the physics of it all better and transferred to another school. Meaning, by the time that I get to my final year, my credits and schedule are just screwy enough that when I'm offered a scholarship, I end up having to take a class on genocide where I'll read an account that will change my life. All because one woman told a girl to lie and say that she was 15 when really she was 12. If I don't stick with audio as a hobby, I might not be making a podcast that's being listened to this very second about the time I was in over my head at a show and a friend decided to go completely out of his way, which is only possible due to the inconvenience caused by our island infrastructure. Put another way, this was an act made incredible because of the burden of the system in which we live. All that was good in there, all the friends that I made through the scene, all the music I enjoyed and all the memories I cherish, wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't built on the shaky foundation of isolation and segregation. I saw maybe not perfect goodness that night, but a goodness all the same. Trotta got me home. Given the circumstances, that might be one of the nicest gestures of which I've ever been on the receiving end. Again, I'm not sure what there is to gain, if anything, from trying to get to the real root of anything. And especially if, after laying all this out, the morale of this feels ironic. I want to live in a world where perfect goodness is impossible to display, where altruism is a myth. There's a sadness to that to be sure, but how could it be any other way? A world in which perfect goodness is possible would require us to live in a collective nightmare permanently. For too many though, that collective nightmare isn't a nightmare at all. That is their reality. My hypotheticals can take a seat. The last question to ask is where I stand, where I want to stand, and what I want to stand for. The game is futile, and the game is irrational. But it's also cruel in the fact that I don't know and will never know what it was, the one actor, the many, that made me who I am. The one typing these words into my computer box and not someone offering armed resistance if those goddamn protesters take so much as one step onto my property. There's too much in common between them and me. Far too much. In the absence of any real or true answers, I don't see why I can't at least have a say in the matter. What would I choose? If everything led me here, then really I could pick anything, couldn't I? So, fuck it. There could be something new every day. My parents, my education, but I think today it'll be this. That even though I went to local shows for the music, the reason I stayed was because of the people. And those people are the best of their kind. Whatever is good in me, I've copied from them, down to their last dancing molecule. I'm an imitation. And should our shattered island ever sink into the sea, they're the ones I want to go down with. We'll be singing those songs at the top of our lungs, 
and because Staten Island so richly deserves its spot beneath the waves, perhaps in those last few moments, with our last gasps of error, we could all admit to our mistakes, that we fucked up, that we fucked up big time, and if nothing else, at least we know. Digital by Brian Buchanan. Mixed by Nick Pittman and mastered by Ian Pritchard. Special thanks to Aaron Janisic, Steve Zimmer, Jason Roshback, Alex Cadwell, Brian McCann, Angelica Bomundo, Cole Rice, Stephen Backus, and me, Kayla Elder. Shout out to Sarah Anderson and Casper Turkile. Intro and outro music by On Pink. Additional music provided by Stockholm Blush, Collector Emitter, Chronophile, Sean Gold, Lincoln Mayorga, Mike Maldarelli, Joe Ippolito, Ross Fish, and Curious Volume. Shahrazad by Rimsky Korsakov was performed by David Nolan, Enrique Batiz, and the Philharmonia Orchestra, and was provided courtesy of Naxos of America Incorporated. Up She Rises and Classic Battle by Sam Spence were provided courtesy of APM Music. Promotional material provided by Marissa Soto. Additional material provided by James Yarazinski and Marquise Pickering. For more information, please check out our website at brianbuchanan57.com. That's Brian with an I, Buchanan like the president, and 57 like the ketchup bottle. Hail Mary Digital is a co-production between Fat Jewel and Star Command Audio Solutions. Later, stranger. Stranger.